0: My name's Jana and I'm a trainee psychological well-being practitioner. I read the clinical psychologist collective
1: book. I found it really interesting about all the different stories um, and how people got to become a clinical psychologist. It just amazed me how many different routes there are to get there and there's no perfect way to become one and this kind of filled me with confidence that no I'm not doing it wrong and put less pressure on myself. So if you're feeling a bit uneasy
0: about becoming a clinical psychologist i definitely recommend this just to put um, yourself at ease and everything will, will be okay. But
1: trust me you will not put the book down once you start.
2: If you're looking to become a psychologist
1: Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. Thank you for listening as ever, and thank you for all of your super kind comments. They're really gratefully received. I'd really love any audio testimonials for the podcast itself or any of the books, um, just so that I know that you're really enjoying Um, what you're listening to and I'd really love to have any audio testimonials you might be willing to leave me for the podcast itself for more information how to do that go to www.goodthinkingpsychology.co.uk forward slash podcast or the link will be there in the show notes for you too This is all about collaboration, and another great piece of collaboration is when we work as part of multidisciplinary teams, also called MDTs, and being part of an MDT and having had MDT experience is something which is really useful um, for any aspiring psychologist, and it's something that often crops up, um, you know, for assistant psychologist interviews I learned my trade um, in working in multidisciplinary teams when I was at St Andrews Healthcare. That was the first MDT team that I had been part of. And I was so fortunate that I'd been around such highly skilled and competent, caring, kind um, team members. And I learned a great deal from them. And they were. know, kind and patient towards me as I develop my stripes as an aspiring psychologist too. So when I was thinking about reaching out um, to have a psychiatrist on the podcast, my first thoughts were of um, a psychiatrist I had worked with as an aspiring psychologist and so I was brave and I reached out and asked him if he would be willing to come along and record an episode for us and he was um, so kind and gracious and said that he would love to. Um, so I am thrilled to um, introduce you to someone I knew as a doctor, um, and since I have moved on to pastures new, he has gone on to become a professor. So you're going to be listening to me chatting with Professor Graham Yourston, who is a consultant psychiatrist. And today's episode is all about working with MDTs, but also about practical ways um, to manage risks as well which is something that psychiatrists are really good at and something that i learned a lot from my time working at st andrews i hope you find this episode really useful Um, and as ever we welcome any comments um, any questions Um, you can watch this on youtube but it is audio only so you'll just have lots of nice pictures to look at if you're watching on YouTube, um, if you're listening on Apple podcast please do rate and review, um, be gratefully received. So, yeah, hope you find this episode useful. So, welcome along. I just want to say hi um, and welcome our guest, Professor Graham Yorston. Um, I'll let you introduce yourself.
3: Hi, yes, I'm Graham Yorston. I am a forensic neuropsychiatrist. So, I've had a kind of wide range of experience in different areas of psychiatry worked in different hospitals around the country, in Scotland and England, um, and different levels of security. So from high secure, medium secure, low secure, and currently working in a rehab setting in Northampton.
1: Wonderful thank you so much for joining us. Um, our paths first crossed when I was an assistant psychologist so when I was looking at how to thicken the dialogue of psychiatry and psychology you were the first person I thought of but I am a, I'm a little bit daunted to have you here.
3: <laughs> I can't imagine why you'd be daunted no I, it's uh, I think you know assistant psychologists do perform a really important part of of MDTs and um I think it is difficult because, uh, you know, particularly if you're a brand new assistant psychologist, you're you're quite young and everybody else in the team is uh, usually a bit older and they may have years and years of experience. But there's absolutely nothing to be daunted by. Um, you know, most people in MDTs are very nice and very welcoming.
1: They certainly are. And I always felt very welcome in the teams when I worked with you. So thank you. Um, I, do, <laughs> I do remember you didn't really like my hair accessories at the time. And you had a very valid, <laughs> a very valid point. <laughs> I don't you remember I had some sort of crazy chopsticks in my hair. And you were like, someone could easily poke you in the eye with those. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> yes, you may be right.
3: <laughs> I, gosh, I think the Alzheimer's must be catching up with me. I don't actually remember that. Uh, no, you mentioned it. I, yeah, I mean, it's the kind of important issue of kind of risk awareness that somebody right at the start of their career just may not think about um things <laughs> like that that could be used as a potential weapon in a in a secure unit where people um you know have a history of of serious violence
1: absolutely i did give it back to you though i did say well they could whip the pen out of your pocket as well dr yorston and you were like yeah but then I'd, kn- I'd know they'd done that you wouldn't know if they're behind you and i was like all right you're totally right. <laughs> <laughs> I never wore them again to work. By the way,
3: <laughs> very sensible. I did w- take a pen in, and you're absolutely right. So pens are a potential uh, weapon, and in some of the the most uh, acute wards in uh, high secure hospitals, uh, you have to leave your pens uh, in store, and you uh, are only allowed to use those little tiny stubby pens that um, you know that kind of. Uh, three or four inches long
1: like you steal from asda not asda argos (laughs) that's
3: the ones
1: (laughs) we don't we don't condone stealing here Um, they've switched them to pencils now you know
3: you can still hurt someone seriously with a pencil and you know uh particularly if it's a really sharp pencil you can do a lot of damage um uh, and certainly in one of the hospitals that i worked at um, it was damage to, to people's eyes that were the um, was the kind of preferred. That doesn't sound the right quite, quite the right word, but um, it was it was a not uncommon form of attack was to yeah, stab people in the eye with a pen or a pencil.
1: So you're absolutely right to highlight the risk of me wearing chopsticks to work. So thank you for that. But it's an important area to consider, isn't it? When we're working with risk, especially not even when we're working in forensic services, you know, any setting we're working in, even someone we think we know really well could potentially be risky.
3: Yeah, I think this is a really important point to get across. Um, if you're working in a high-secure hospital, then you're going to get a lot of induction about risk, and you're going to be well aware that you're dealing with people who could pose a risk to you. But if you're working in an outpatient setting or um, an acute psychiatry inpatient setting, then that's the first point of contact that people will have with uh, with uh, mental health services. So. Some of the those people who do end eventually end up in high-secure hospital have started in those services. So they might have all those uh, kind of aggressive tendencies. They just haven't been – no one knows about them yet. So you have to at least be aware of the potential for aggression and make sure that you're safe, make sure that you can get out of an interview room and not put yourself at, at risk in any way.
1: Absolutely. I still remember setting up the room quite carefully. I vividly remember you dragging chairs around to make sure that, um, you know, you were going to be able to get out of rooms and the staff were um, if we needed to and that there were enough escorts or people trained in restraint when well, we were all trained in restraint, weren't we? But um, to be able to, you know, have the best possible outcome from any any situation. It's, it's about thinking in advance, isn't it? And planning for the worst, preparing for the worst and hoping it won't happen.
3: Definitely, yes. And I think um, so, so, you know, you've got to stay in control if you um, are in a hospital or any kind of healthcare setting of, of, of getting the, the room positioned before the person comes in. Always looks a bit strange if you're moving furniture around once they're in. But, you know, get yourself said that you are closest to the door.
1: And I have done that time and time again all throughout my career um even in children's services i was always closest to the door because i've learned from you and from our late colleague dr wood um how to you know how to ensure that your safety and the patient's safety is optimized
3: yeah these, these are very important lessons. i'm glad that um i'm surprised that i was the first person to, to tell you about that but but it, it is those are important lessons um that, you know, get into a good habit early in your career and and always stick with it. It'll just become second nature, then you won't think about it.
1: Definitely. And one of my top tips that I learned was um, pop your your diary on your chair when you go and get the patient so they can't sit in your chair. And it's it's quite interesting when they try to, or they give you your diary back and then you have to say, actually, I'm going to sit there. Um, It's a test of kind of social norms as well
3: that sounds an interesting one I don't think you learned that one from me because uh, that's a really good uh, tip actually i i'd have to remember that one myself
1: <laughs> I, can, I can i have I have use, useful um, strategies as well um you also taught me um something um that you may not know that you taught me but I use every day so I often used to do um the notes um in our ward round sessions but sometimes you would do it and you were doing something on the computer. And I thought, how did he do that? And you introduced me to using the delete button to delete text that you've already typed just to hold your finger on it. Whereas before I met you, I was backspacing every every single thing. So every time I do that, I do think of you.
3: Good heavens! Me teaching someone IT—that sounds highly improbable. But I'll take your word for it. You
1: have to tell your children, and they'll be delighted.
3: (laughs) Yeah, back in the day, I—you know—I was, you know, uh, a relatively um, new adopter of of information technology. But I feel like a dinosaur nowadays because it's all moving way too fast for me.
1: Well, you were an influencer when it came to me and the delete key. So thank you. <laughs> have you learned anything um, along your career from a random source that's been really useful, or something that you can think of that you think, oh, well, that was that was really important for me, or I use that all the time? And you wouldn't necessarily have known that you were planning to learn it at the time.
3: Yes, I mean I think you know, uh, training as as a doctor um, is very much an apprenticeship. So, you know, obviously a lot of your, your facts, your knowledge it comes from books and papers and things, but actually how to deal with, with people, how to approach people, how to interact with team members is very much um, about seeing, you know, being in teams, observing how those teams interact and then going, yeah, I like the way this person is is uh, running you know, his or her team. And that's how I would want to be. And equally, um, seeing people doing it not so well uh, and being a little bit too formal or whatever it might be, I'm thinking, yeah, that doesn't, I don't want to do it that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And how to position yourself in teams can be so important, can't it? Definitely.
3: I think this is one of the key issues for for assistant psychologists, um, because you're coming into a team um, you, you probably don't know people very well. Uh, the team may be very established and have been, you know, going along for years good relationships. Um, there might be people with years and years of clinical experience. Um, and, you know, on your first day, you go into this ward round and see the sea of faces that you don't know. How do you fit into that team? What do you do? Do you uh, Do you be a big personality and kind of you know introduce yourself at full volume or do you kind of just sit in the in the back row and be very meek and mild and hardly say a thing and it's very difficult I think to to break into that team and to be aware that that's you know that that requires effort and work and thinking about I think is important Um, I think the more that you make a conscious effort uh, to think about well how am I going to do this um you know the, the better it's likely to be. And and every team's going to be different. Um, so as I say, you know, I've worked in, in in a huge number of uh different uh environments um and the the extent to which the medical model is dominant uh varies between teams and therefore the 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 extent to which psychological input into those teams is going to be absolutely integral or slightly peripheral is is going to is also going to, to vary and i would say you know as a new ap uh, joining a team listen observe uh relatively quietly you don't want to be completely anonymous um but you know don't go in with a big personality and big opinions uh, straight off because like people are just gonna, gonna look at you and think mm, who is this person so you know Observe, be helpful to the team. So, um, I always, uh, one of the things I've always done is occasionally make coffee, so that absolutely everybody in the team is is you know is part of that rotor. No one is above going and making coffee for everybody else, and that uh, helps uh, bonding. Um, so, again, depending on how the the kind of MDT meetings are, are organized, um, usually patients will be brought into those. Uh, meetings, and I think it works really well if right from the beginning, um, as an assistant psychologist, you you say, "Oh, you know, would you like me to go and get the patient?" Uh, rather than relying on, on on one person to do that. Um, and also, I think understanding what the the model of of the psychology input to the team is is it a totally integrated approach? Are you there every week for every uh, MDT meeting or ward round? Um, every CPA are you there on that ward and it's your ward or is it more of a a kind of referral model Um, and if it's a referral model and you're just going to occasional ones then that's fine to then ask for referrals but if you're in part of an integrated team um, then there's nothing worse than uh, if, if somebody in the team is saying it would be really helpful to have a psychology opinion on this to then say, "All right, great, thank you. Can you do a referral, please?" It is probably the thing that gets me uh, not irritated. It's not as strong as that, but just mm, frustrated more than more than anything else.
1: Yeah, I think it's tricky. Certainly in community services where I've worked, you kind of can't launch in straight away. Um, but when you're on an inpatient ward and you're all there anyway, you know, it feels like you can come to the fore a little bit more quickly you know and and um yeah support on the ground um without, without additional forms
3: that's it yeah i mean um so, so being aware of um i mean everybody is time pressured i'm not saying that that any one professional group is less time pressured than any other but um particularly for, for nurses and Doctors, you're constantly reprioritizing. And that is something that happens less, I think, in in psychology. You're, you're often able, you have a luxury um, of being able to kind of work through a, a kind of a to do list um, without constantly having to, to put things on. Oh no, uh, I've got to move this one forward and that one back. Um, at least that, that's my impression. Tell me if I'm completely wrong on that. But uh, that, that's my impression. And so uh, the, the kind of the urgency of things sometimes feels more from people from kind of nursing and medical backgrounds. And just being aware of that really, I think, is important.
1: Yeah, I think even since when I was working alongside you, the expectations on unqualified psychologists has gone through the roof. So I didn't hold my own caseload when I was working with you. I was very much to support the psychologist and the psychology functions, but also the MDT. Um, so, you know, I might have done the odd bit of neuropsych here and there. I was doing, um, you know, the, uh, the monitoring and the recording of all of the um, sexually inappropriate behaviors and the, um, you know, the aggression and reporting on those for the ward rounds and things. But I didn't hold my own caseload, whereas actually what's happened in the time since I was um, an aspiring psychologist is, that people are being encouraged to hold their own caseloads as well. And people are working, you know, sometimes even as much as, you know, 80, 90% of their um whole-time equivalent hours are face-to-face client times. Um and that is that's a big pressure. It's a big change. And the level of even the level of risk and responsibility that aspiring psychologists are being asked to hold these t- you know, in these times, I grew into that responsibility. Um, and we're asking a lot more, a lot sooner, I think, um, which gives you less room for a little bit of playfulness and less room to you know to make those mistakes and to learn by watching other people do it because there's more pressure on you you know like you said it's nice to come in and grow into a role but actually a lot of aspiring psychologists are finding that they're kind of being you know farmed out and put on the production line and expected to perform almost from day one and it's it's very difficult
3: okay that really does sound like being thrown in at the deep end and um my, my sense is that uh that that is how I learned as a doctor, uh, and I think most other people, you know, learn that the, the old kind of maxim of see one, do one, teach one. You you know, you see uh, some procedure once, uh, you then expected to be able to do it yourself, and then once you've done one, you're expected to teach everybody else how to do it. Um, and I don't think that's right, but it uh, you certainly you're. Your pace of learning uh, is is much more than if you if you you start off very cautiously and, and spend a lot of time observing. You're going to learn an awful lot more from doing than you are from uh, watching someone else do. So, I mean, it's interesting that that you're saying that. I, I perhaps hadn't hadn't realised that, that there'd been that change. Um, so it's tough, um, but it will definitely you know help people decide more quickly if if they're in the right career and and if it suits them
1: and there is that isn't there there is burnout in our profession as a mental health professional um, especially during the pandemic you know because there wasn't any working from home when there's patients to go in and support who are living in inpatient units it's very difficult how's your experience of burnout been in the profession and how to support and nurture members of the team to try to reduce burnout
3: yeah, I think it is very important um, and it has been very, very tough. I mean, my, my current job, as I say, is, is a rehab unit and we're trying to all the time help people become reintegrated into the community uh, and to then try and do that when they were literally were not allowed outside the hospital. The kind of There was the national guidelines and then the local public health guidelines that said, um, actually, you're a hospital, therefore your patients aren't allowed out. And that was for months on end. And it was very tough for the patients, absolutely amazingly well in in coping with that. Uh, But it was also tough on staff because it meant that they were having to be constantly thinking of new things to do, to to stop people getting bored and to try and, uh, you know, uh, recreate some of the things that they would be doing if they were in the community. So we had about a million and one barbecues and things. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just trying to, to keep fresh, um, was a real challenge. But I think burnout generally is, is an important issue. Um, it's people do talk about it, but, uh, often slightly reluctant to talk about their own problems. I've certainly had problems in my own career, times where things got very difficult and, uh, you need to be able to talk to someone if if you feel things building up. If you're not enjoying your work, if you you know you kind of wake up in the morning and just think, "Oh God, I, I can't. I don't want to go in. I can't face it," then that's a problem, and you need to talk about that. And there's usually resolutions to these things. Um, and it may be that uh, you know a change of scene, um, a change of team. Um, I mean, uh, I think we're both lucky that we've worked with with great. Teams and great team members, but sometimes teams don't function very well. And if you're in one of these, uh, well, let's call it a toxic team, they do exist. Um, it's it's horrible, and sometimes the only thing you can do is is get out of that as quickly as possible, or at least limit your kind of exposure to the toxicity. Um, so, absolutely, talking to your supervisor and being kind of open and honest about things. Um, Honesty is always the best policy. You know, people worry. Oh, if I kind of worry or sound like I'm moaning, then I might not get a good reference. Um, but it's far better to to be honest, I think, and and, and deal with with problems. You know, that you can get, you can get bullying, you can get inappropriate attention, all sorts of issues can arise, um, and and you have to deal with it. I think you have to deal with it.
1: Yeah I love that idea actually about thinking about maybe it's not me you know maybe I'm okay maybe the problem is the environment here maybe this is a toxic team and people often say to me well I'm a bit worried about just having like a six-month post or a four-month post on my CV and how that looks and it's like actually no you're the golden goose you have to look after you and if this isn't a good fit for you it's okay to say no it's okay to say actually I'm going elsewhere because this is not okay for me this is not how I you know like your values of how to treat people this is not how I think it's okay to treat people and I'm going to vote with my feet you know I'm going to use my voice and if if saying no is not making a difference you can be empowered and you can make different choices to go elsewhere.
3: Yeah absolutely Um, and it, it is tricky I think it's 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 maybe well in some ways it's slightly easier towards the end of your career or once you've had a few years under your belt because you've got some experience to draw on at the start of your career it's very hard to say actually this just is not working for me um but you know trust yourself and um yeah follow follow your in- instincts is what i would say and if if it just feels horrible when you go to work that is not normal it's not right and you shouldn't put up with it
1: absolutely I'll have to say working with you was not a toxic environment I really Thank really enjoyed it and <laughs> <laughs> leaving leaving um, St Andrews was really difficult for me from a really supportive really cohesive really big and broad team um, to then going somewhere very much smaller in the NHS where I was the only assistant and there was one qualified forensic psychologist it couldn't have been you know, tiny little um, healthcare building couldn't have been more different. And I really mourned for all of you when I left. Um, you know, it's still it's important to build different portfolios of your work across the, across your career. But, um, yeah, it's really difficult, hard to replicate what, what you guys are offering in terms of experience and nurturance as well. And really good staff parties.
3: <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed those. Yeah, no, St Andrews, I would say... Um, at the time you were there, most of the time that I was there was a fantastic place to work, uh, and, I, and I'm, I I know that it you know it helped many uh, kind of uh, psychologists go on to bigger and, and better things. Um, it was a great place to do research, um, and 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 just make those kind of take those first footsteps towards you know just ex- you know having a bit more on your CV than just clinical work. Getting involved in research is, is so important. Um, uh, my current uh, post at St. Matthews Healthcare. Um, well, that's one of the things that I've been trying to do is is get and uh, encourage uh, assistant psychologists to to be involved in very simple little research projects. I mean, it doesn't have to be some massive international uh, collaboration study, just you know uh, case report, um, getting that done as a poster, um, or uh, kind of writing up an audit, all those kind of things. Just gives you a bit more on your CV. It also, yeah, helps helps build relationships. And, um, however, um, I'm, I'm a great believer in, in research. And 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 the the advantages really that research brings to, to helping you think about about anything really. Um, obviously, if you're writing a paper, it will be about that particular topic. But it's how you approach any topic um, in in your career is important, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, research is so important. It's one of the key aspects for aspiring psychologists. And, it's you know, you get separate points on your forms um, for research. So I did my first piece of published research was at St. Andrews. And if Dr. Yorston, as you were at the time, you're now a professor, had asked me to get involved, I'd have snapped your hand off. (laughs) I
3: really would. I can't believe I didn't ask you. I'm always asking. but um, <laughs> I've, I've,
1: I've written it up for you. But this is one of the advantages. You know, you can approach people and say, do you need any help with writing up this research? Because then you get your name on a paper, which is amazing, amazing. And research is useful for the now. But what leads us on quite nicely to the next area of conversation is it's really useful to reflect upon as well and to help us learn about um, what went before us and what people's previous assumptions were about mental health. And this is really a specialist area of interest for you as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why and what I'm talking about?
3: Yes, that was a very nice lead in. Thank you very much yeah um so i 've always been interested in the history of psychiatry my, i think my very first paper actually was uh, was um, a history of psychiatry paper, and I just always believed that it 's important to to have a full understanding of of what our ideas about uh, mental health problems and diagnoses are now. We have to understand. How those ideas have evolved over time, and in, for some disorders, it goes right back to ancient Greece and ancient Egypt, and uh, kind of, uh, you know, early China and, and India. So they're very, very long routes to uh, some of the uh, mental disorders. Others are very modern, and unless you you have some understanding about that, it's very difficult, I think, to uh, to 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 fully grasp the the importance of uh you know of diagnoses and 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 why words are important so um as i say i've been doing interest in that all my life um just in the last uh six months i have started a uh, youtube channel on the history of mental health um i if I'm honest, I probably wouldn't have done it if it hadn't been for the help of my son doing all the, the technical stuff. Um, uh, but we've so far put out, uh, I think it's nine uh, nine videos on a kind of wide range of history of mental health topics, um, and they're quite unusual. I think looking at other uh, videos out there. Um, that we're definitely trying to aim for them being quite academic. So there's lots of uh, kind of references to papers, um, and uh, in the you know the kind of the about section of the videos, I do include a kind of academic reference list. So they are they are meant to be understandable to the general public, but but to be of particular interest, I think, to to people working in mental health.
1: Well, I've watched two of them so far, and honestly, I find them really interesting. I think it's really useful to have the theory behind it, but from an expert as well, from someone that gets it in the modern context um, and can portray it in a really relatable way, it's really unique.
3: Yeah, I, I think they're quite good. <laughs> um, and um, in terms of kind of viewing figures, it, it's uh, it's interesting that you know it's is building, um, and and also just looking, looking at some of the other videos out there on very similar ranges of topics some of them you kind of realize that this person has really just read out a a wikipedia um uh, entry almost word for word um and and that's okay and that's often where i start if it's a topic i don't don't know much about that's that's usually my starting point but i will definitely try and add a bit more context and what i will always try and do is 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 talk about how ideas have changed over time and it's, that's particularly interesting I think for, for more recent history. So I've done a couple of videos on, uh, well one in particular I think, um, Rosemary Kennedy, uh, the sister of President uh, Kennedy um, and uh, she had probably a kind of mild learning disability might even not have been below the kind of uh, diagnostic threshold if she was formally tested. But at the time, there was huge uh, stigma associated with that and some you know terrible old-fashioned phrases that we you know it, it's really hard to speak them out loud nowadays, feeble-mindedness, morons. all this kind of terminology was, was in the medical and psychological literature. There were people writing papers about this um, and suggesting that uh, they should be compulsorily sterilised. Um, and in the US, there were 60,000 people were were, were sterilised because they were thought to be unfit for, for breeding. Um, and obviously, that went to its furthest extreme in, in Germany, where people with mental illness mental, uh, and learning disability were killed were murdered um thousands of them 300,000 so it's important to to know so, so this is that's just about within living memory um 1930s obviously the war uh the war period that there are you know fewer and fewer people around that actually remember that but the, the um uh, the, the kind of uh, folk memory if you like of of ideas and 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 stigma and, uh, you know, lives on. And, you know, even within my career, I can see changes in uh, the the way mentally ill people have been uh, uh, regarded, the way psychiatry is, you know, viewed by other members of the medical uh, profession. Um, And if I'm honest, you know, I, I probably... Would have shared some of those ideas at medical schools, like who wants to be a psychiatrist? You know, that's that's terrible. You know, he'd never do anything very much, never cure anyone. Um, would have been the kind of rhetoric uh, back in the the 1980s, and uh, it's been uh, you know, over the last 30 40 years, there has been a a gradual move, uh, a gradual acceptance that that mental illness isn't something to be ashamed of. Um, and I think you know, particularly and maybe in the last. 10 years, we're we're gradually moving towards this this greater acceptance, but there's still a long way to go. There's still a lot of those ideas that were still there, um, you know, in the 30s, 40s, 50s. uh, They're still there. They still affect people's thinking.
1: Thank you. That's so interesting. And I love the breadth and the depth of your experience, which I think is what your competition did not have, um, because, you know, you've earned your stripes, absolutely. And there's something to be said about... Aspiring psychologists learning that breadth and that depth as well, isn't it? And learning about the importance of the theory.
3: Absolutely, yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that uh, a lot of assistant psychologists uh, talk about is, is diagnosis. And obviously that's, that's not necessarily a word that is is the, the right word for psychology. Um, but it is the way uh, doctors work um, and have done you know, for probably 2,000 years. Um, so you've got to at least understand what, what a diagnosis is. And sometimes I get asked questions like, what is the official diagnosis? Um, and that one always prompts a little bit of discussion And uh, from, from me as I say, well, you know, a diagnosis is just an opinion. And even if we say, well, they, they fit the criteria of DSM or ICD-10, those are just our current ideas on, on what the criteria should be, and those have changed over time. They've changed, you know, over the last 50 years and certainly over uh, longer periods of history. So, so a formulation actually is a, a more valid, individualized way of thinking about a person, but um, everyone's always interested in diagnoses. Uh, so, you have to, to, to fit your, uh, you ought be. Uh, willing to at least accommodate um, a diagnosis in in formulations
1: yeah i mean diagnosis is a really useful because it you know like you said it gives us an understanding of how best to understand someone's difficulties and what might be a robust evidence-based treatment plan but it doesn't define somebody
3: no and, and that's the that's the big downside obviously of of diagnoses um and uh, it it puts people into boxes and, and we're dealing with individuals and uh, so whilst I would always uh, have a diagnosis for a patient you know I also make sure that I have a lot of information on their, their early development their their pre-mortive personality um, so that you, you know you're saying well this is the diagnosis but then this is the the, the individual that with this diagnosis and how it has affected them
1: yeah i think it's really useful to discuss with people as well what their diagnosis means and how they feel about it so i work a lot with developmental trauma i should say people who have had um, developmental trauma experiences Um, and a lot of them are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or emotionally unstable personality disorder and they really aren't okay with that because they've already been through awful awful things you know pretty much from the point that they were conceived so then to be labeled with eupd feels like a real kick in the guts and so it's it's a useful conversation to have
3: absolutely yeah. so i always discuss diagnosis with 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 patients whether they remember it whether they want to remember it is is another thing entirely but for something as incendiary as eupd is is such an important diagnosis Uh, but also you know helping patients understand that you know, if what that actually says to other people who will be reading that diagnosis, and sadly, it it's you know, it's not going to um, you know, people are, are going to think, oh, right, uh, difficult patient, um, uh, and and they. And I, I think it's useful for patients to know that that diagnoses are going to evoke emotional responses in, in in other healthcare professionals.
1: Definitely. I have loved speaking with you today and I honestly feel like I could speak to you all day, um, but we tried to keep these episodes at about 30 minutes. So we're going to need to draw it to a close. Have you got any final points or kind of um, questions or observations that you want to make?
3: Yeah, no, just really, um, you yeah. know, Work hard at becoming part of the, the team, as I say, make the coffee, go and get the patients. Um,
1: but you will also sometimes make the coffee. You know, not being absolutely.
3: Elitistive. No, definitely not. So, um, you know, if there's any psychiatrist listening to this, then do not expect people to make coffee for you. Be willing to go and, and, and make it. So it, it's it's although usually that the psychiatrist is the uh, the unelected leader of the team there's no real reason for that there's no management responsibility that says oh the doctor has to be in charge but that's just the way most teams work not every team um but the way most teams work and just being aware of that and working with it and with the uh being aware of the, the kind of the history of of how psychiatry psychology and other professions have developed and all work together
1: I love it. It's been such an interesting episode and been a pleasure to speak to you. How can people um get um get connected with you? Where where are you at with your YouTube channel?
3: YouTube search putting Professor Graham Yorston or History of Mental Health. That will lead to to my videos um and that's probably the easiest way to get hold of me i think my son's even opened a tiktok one for me but i don't really know what's on that yet i don't really understand tiktok but i'm not doing any dancing it's safe with that one um so that's probably the easiest place to to see me lovely
1: let's have a practice what should people do when they get to your channel
3: uh oh yes <laughs> they should now what is it called again subscribe <laughs> Yeah. So and subscribe and like and comment, like, and comment. And... so comments is, is important um one of the things you uh, you do have to be aware of, though, is you have to develop a thick skin. So there's overwhelmingly positive comments so far, but by gum, there's a few absolutely horrible ones. <laughs> so you have to learn to kind of uh, not focus on those, which is, you know, it's important in life to, to be able to do that. So like, subscribe and click on the notification so that when the new ones come out, it goes, you somehow know about it miraculously by the wonder of technology.
1: <laughs> I love that. Honestly. Do it, do it, and do it for this channel as well, because this one's good too. It's been an absolute pleasure to reconnect with you and wishing you all the best with your YouTube channel and beyond, and book writing and all of those good things that are going to be coming imminently. Thank you so much for joining me.
3: And thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Hello, my name is Veronika Kasova. I live in Edinburgh and I just graduated with a Master's in Psychology of Mental Health. Marian recommended me the Clinical Psychologist Collective when I was networking on LinkedIn and I must say I love it. Um, It is one of a kind. It's like a window into the lives of people on the path of becoming a psychologist. The stories are unique, honest and filled with a kind of intangible wisdom only personal storytelling can uncover. A common thread in the stories I valued most was to be compassionate not only with others, but with myself too. Also, not fixating on becoming a psychologist, but enjoying life, grow, and the final results will come as a byproduct. Marianne, thank you for taking the time to collate all the stories. The book is a true gem, and I think every aspiring psychologist should have a copy on their shelf. Thank you.
2: To become a psychologist And let this be your guide Filled with lessons and experience That will help you. Get.
1: Thank you so much for listening. I really love to connect with you over on socials. LinkedIn is Dr. Marianne Trent. YouTube is Good Thinking Psychological Services. Facebook is also Good Thinking Psychological Services. Twitter is Good Thinking PS1. Instagram is Dr. Marianne Trent. If TikTok is your jam, I'm also on there too at Dr. Marianne Trent. Being well supported during psychology application season is so important. We have got one final date planned for um, a compassionate Q&A, which is going to be taking place on the 9th of May, Monday the 9th of May, at 7.30pm UK time, and that is free to attend. If you would like to watch any of the replays from the three previous um, episodes, then you can do so by going along to Good Thinkings psychological services on youtube and then if you click the playlist um, compassionate q a you'll be able to find the three previous um, episodes there hope you will find it useful and as ever we would love any feedback you've gotten any of our free resources if you are finding this podcast helpful please do talk about it on social media tag me in tag your friends do all of those good things and I will look forward to catching up with you on our next episode which will be along um, on Mondays at 6am UK time thank you so much
2: if you're looking to become a psychologist then let this be your guide with this podcast at your side you'll be on your way to being qualified it's the aspiring psychologist My name is Diakalola Amujam. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK D application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.